All right, let's get into the message here this morning. We are in Revelation chapter number 10. I'm extremely excited about the message and um, hopeful that uh, the things that the Lord has spoke to my heart about, that the Lord will enable me to convey those things to you and you'll be able to see and understand the things here from God's holy word. Revelation 10 and verse number 1, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with the cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right hand upon the sea, and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roareth, and when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices." When the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. The angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and all the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God shall be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets." And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again and said, Go and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey." And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. I want to speak to you this morning out of Revelation 10 on the subject of the mighty angel and the mystery of God. Father, bless your word this morning. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you. You may be seated. Our text begins with John saying, I saw. John saw or I saw is a familiar expression throughout the book of Revelation. And when I think about John saying, I saw, I'm reminded of the entire context of the book of Revelation, and that is that While it may say at the title page, the revelation of St. John Divine, I want to remind us all that this is not the revelation of John, but rather this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. These things are written for more, far more than just our intrigue and our understanding. These are written to reveal to us Jesus Christ. Revelation 1.1, it says the very beginning of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. So the revelation comes from Jesus Christ, and it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Too often we think of Revelation as an intriguing book 
that just fascinates our mind and we just want to explore all of the mysteries and the unknown things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But please, I beg of you as we go through the book of Revelation, the most important thing is that we see that it is about Jesus Christ. And I mentioned he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that's what we're looking for, folks. That is what we are looking for. So diving right into the message this morning, point number one, I want to talk about a parenthesis. Now, we mentioned that there was a parenthesis back when we were preaching on the seal judgments. And it's just amazing how God put the book of Revelation together. It's perplexing sometimes because we often, when we read a story or a book, we cannot help but think chronologically. But the book of Revelation is not strictly chronological from chapter 1, verse 1 to the very end. In fact, there's different parentheses, different little inputs that God inserts. But the interesting thing is that the parentheses that appears between the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments are almost identical. In Revelation 5, while God's revealing to us the seal judgments, it says that a strong angel proclaims, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? I hope you remember the answer. Jesus Christ was the only one that was worthy. And then in Revelation 6, we have the first four seals are opened consecutively followed by seal 5 and seal 6 so they were just they, they were kind of separate 1 through 4 5 through 6 and then between the 6th seal and the 7th seal we have a parentheses where god energized some of the commentators or i've heard preachers refer to this parentheses as an intermission regardless of what we call it It's something that's not chronologically in context that God, for a specific reason, just inserts this narrative. And of course, in the parentheses uh, that takes place between seal number six and seal number seven, we have the revelation of the 144,000 Jews and the tribulation. And then here during these trumpet judgments, we have the same pattern. We have four trumpets consecutively. A little bit of shift in gears or change of directions, and then we have trumpet five, and then trumpet number six, and right between the sixth trumpet judgment and the seventh, we have this parenthetical statement that, or narrative that we just read. I think it's important that we understand that, that what we're reading is a parentheses, that something we don't know if it takes place chronologically uh, between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. We just know that it happens sometime in a manner that is relative to these trumpet judgments. And so quickly, we move on to point number two. And what I want to talk about, did I introduce the title this morning? I can't remember if I did. I did. Okay, good. The Mighty Angel and the Mystery of God. The the second point is I want to talk to you about the person of the Mighty Angel. Who is this Mighty Angel? There's been considerable conversation and dialogue and controversy regarding the person of this angel. I'm going to cut right to the chase and I'm going to tell you what I believe. 
I believe that this mighty angel of Revelation 10 is none other than a Christophany, which is a fancy theological word for a, a appearance of Jesus Christ. Uh, you've heard of a theophany, that's when God shows up here on the earth, and I believe personally that this mighty angel is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now, many good men teach otherwise, and I'm certainly not trying to contradict them or put myself in a place that I think that I'm a better Bible teacher or Bible student than they are. I just simply have to call it the way that I see it. Now, if I'm going to tell you that I believe that it's Jesus Christ, then I think it's imperative that I explain to you both sides of the equation and at least back up what I'm saying and why I draw such conclusions. Now, the main argument for those who say that this is not Christ is, is, you know, first of all, that it doesn't say that it's Jesus. It says that it was a mighty angel. And as I've, I haven't read what everybody has to say about it, but the handful of authors that I have read, one of the main arguments that people think that it is not Jesus Christ is because that Christ, this is what they say, that Christ is not going to set foot on earth until the second advent. Well, that's a logical argument, and I can understand where they're coming from, but I haven't seen a proof text that backs that up. Like I said, it's a good logical argument, but I don't see any biblical proof text to back that up, that that's an absolute statement. Regardless, listen, regardless, folks, this is so important. There's no cause for contention or argument here. I have no problem with somebody who just takes it for what it says. This is a mighty angel. They don't draw the same conclusions as I do, but they are using honest Bible exegesis, and what do I mean by, uh, the, the word exegesis means to extract the truth from the writing. If they are being honest about that and they don't see it the same way that I do, I have no problem with that. But I'll tell you what I do have a problem with is if someone has an alma mater or a guru and they're just blindly defending their guru because they're scared to death that they're going to catch flack if they see it or teach it some other way. That's not honest, and that is not handling the Word of God the way that we're supposed to. I have no problem with someone who doesn't see it the same way that I do. There's no cause for disagreement or contention. Listen, disagreement over obscure texts should never cause division. Please remember that. It's important. And if you are to be a Bible student, if you young men would ever become passionate about learning the Bible for yourself and one day teaching and one day preaching, it's so important that we balance our passion for Bible doctrine with the Bible doctrine of charity and courtesy and understanding in our life. And so the question is, is it Christ? As I read this, the description of this mighty angel certainly, I don't think you can argue with this fact, the description certainly sounds like Jesus Christ. I mean, look at it with me once again in verse 1. He's He came down from heaven. He's a mighty angel. He's clothed with a cloud. 
and a rainbow is upon his head, his face as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. I don't know about you, but that sure does sound like Jesus Christ to me. But the determining factor in my mind is this text. Revelation 11 and verse 1 through 3, you have this same mighty angel still speaking. And it says, the angel stood saying, watch this folks, and I will give power unto my two witnesses. I find it difficult, almost impossible to think that the two witnesses in the tribulation period are two witnesses that belong to an angel. I believe that they are the witnesses that are there. They belong to Jesus Christ. They're his witnesses in the tribulation period. On more than one occasion, Jesus appears in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. We've taught that in time past. That is a crystal clear, without argument topic. God speaks to Moses regarding an angel that is to be followed and obeyed who will bring them into the promised land. Exodus 23, verse number 20. Behold, I send an angel, capital A, before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. This same angel is commonly referred to as the angel of the covenant and uh, numerous times, and I'm not going to take the time to prove this, but if you will study out anywhere in the scripture that the term the angel of the Lord shows up, you will find that at least a handful of those times, it is a Christophany, it is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, or it's God manifesting himself in some earthly visible form. Now, when I said that he's referred to as the angel of the covenant, I think that's relative to what we just read. The covenant is with Israel, not with the church, but with Israel. The tribulation period, as we've already seen, is about Israel. It is the time of Jacob's trouble. It is the time when God is going to... uh establish that new covenant with Israel. God offered the new covenant to Israel when Jesus was here the first time. Israel rejected it. And so we've had this 2,000 plus odd year church age period. But folks, according to Romans 11 and the book of Revelation, God's going to bring his program all the way back to Israel. And when Israel finally recognizes that they crucified their Messiah when they repent and get right with God, then and only then will that new covenant be enforced. A covenant is an agreement between two parties, and it will not come into force until the second party agrees to that covenant. The covenant is with Israel. Israel is the immediate context of this portion of the book of Revelation. Now, the rainbow, isn't it just disgusting of how the rainbow is identified today and what it is identified with? The rainbow comes from God. God put the rainbow in the cloud, and what it was is it was the token of a covenant, 
an agreement that God made with the human race that I'll no, uh, no longer ever again destroy the earth with a flood. And when you see that rainbow in the cloud, you should think of the fact that God made a covenant, a promise. That's a very important thing. So a rainbow is a symbol of a covenant. And then, of course, as we look at verse number one, this mighty angel, I believe Jesus Christ, he's clothed with a cloud. Now, you and I, we don't always appreciate clouds unless the sun's real hot and we need a little shade. Oftentimes, we say, I would like to have a sunny day instead of a cloudy day. We don't recognize clouds with any significance, but the children of Israel certainly viewed clouds very differently. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, that cloud was a token of the presence of God. And that cloud was what was leading them by day into the promised land, into the land of the covenant. And so all of these elements here are symbolic, they're significant, and you we see the connections that in my mind's eye certainly strengthen the teaching that this mighty angel is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the person of the mighty angel. Point number three, I'd like to talk this morning about the persona of the mighty angel. We see this from verse 1 down to verse number 4. In verse 1, we saw what he's clothed and the appearance. And in verse number 3, it says, he cried with a loud voice and uh, as when a lion roareth. And, you know, that's another thing. I mean, that lion roaring, that's significant. But when I think of this mighty angel that John has saw with his visible eyes, now keep in mind, John said, I saw a mighty angel come down. Previously, John is seeing, John is in the presence of the throne of God, and he's seeing what's going on there. But in this text, John is on the earth, and he's looking up, and he's seeing this mighty angel coming down. Uh, Folks, I can't help but in my mind's eye see a towering colossal figure. Why? Because this mighty angel is standing with one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And so a towering colossal figure and perhaps maybe this appearance is maybe reduced to more lifelike proportions when the narrative comes to the point where he hands John the little book that was in his hand. I, I can't tell you that the way that I see it in my mind is accurate. I'm just conveying to you uh, how I feel and what I think about it. The magnificent appearance in verse 1 is comparable to the Lord in Revelation chapter number 1. In verse 2, his right foot is on the sea, his left foot is on the earth. And the scripture, this statement is connected to property ownership. In Acts 7, verse number 5, it says, speaking of Abraham, he gave him none inheritance in it. Watch this. No, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him when as yet he had no child. So Stephen is making a reference to Abraham. God promised Abraham a land that had not previously belonged to him and when 
Abraham occupied that land, when he set foot upon it, God says, I'm giving it to you. It was already prophesied, but Abraham had to leave Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham had to leave his family and had to actually obey and go and set foot. In the same manner, let me tell you something, folks. This world belongs to Jesus Christ. But he has given some rulership, some authority to Satan and to the descendants of Adam. He has given us some occupation and some power and some authority. But this belongs to Jesus Christ. But it won't be fully realized until he claims it and he sets his foot on it and says, it's mine. Verse number three, the voice of a roaring lion. I I know that Satan goes about as a roaring lion, but this is not the voice as a roaring lion. This is the voice of a roaring lion because it is none other, I believe, than the lion of the tribe of Judah. Verse number seven, God forbids John to write what the seven thunders uttered. Now, folks, there are things that God doesn't want us to know. There are things we don't need to know yet. I know we want to know everything. Why? Because we are insecure and we are controlling and we are self-sufficient and we think, hey, God, if you'll, if you'll show me, I'll believe you. And God, I'll trust you if you'll just let me in on what's going on. But God says, you're going to have to trust me based on who I am, not based on what I tell you. And a lot of the Christian life revolves around that statement right there. We have to trust God based on who he is. God, show me and I'll obey. God says, obey and I'll show you. Seems like such a subtle twist. Human nature is, hey, if I, if I understand, then I'll be secure. God says, I don't care if you understand. You just, I've already given you what you need to know. And that is that I am trustworthy and what I tell you is true. So often we, we treat God the same way that we treat one another. It's like, hey, I, I'm not going to trust you unless I can get inside your head. I, I, I have to analyze your motives and I have to figure out what you really, really mean by that. When what we need to do is we need to be honest and forthright. Let our yea be yea and our nay be nay and just take people at face value. I understand that people are not always honest and we can't always take them at face value. But let me tell you something. We can God because God cannot tell a lie. God cannot and will not ever do anything that's inconsistent with his holiness and with his. Hey, if you can't trust God almighty, then who indeed can you ever trust? God says, I don't want you to write these things, John. He has revealed to us more than enough. You know, folks, sometimes we think, well, I'm just not learning anything out of the Bible. I'm stagnant. I read the Bible and I don't understand it. You know what you ought to do? You ought to, you ought to take a step back and say, hmm, are there things that God's already shown me that I'm ignoring? I'm not doing anything about it. 
You may think, well, God's not speaking to me. The preacher's not feeding me and, you know, I'm just not being fed and all that. And I understand sometimes the preacher doesn't always do a great job feeding the sheep. But I also know that sometimes the problem's with the appetite, not the food. And oftentimes, you know, the Bible says clearly that the full soul loatheth the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul every bitter thing shall be sweet. You know, most of your problem with your Christian life, your spiritual devotions, and your church life is that you're not out there laboring in the field and fighting in the battle, and so we come in, it's like, okay, bless me if you can, preacher. What do you got for me? Uh, What does your church have for my kids? What does your church have? And I say to you, what do you have for Jesus Christ? If we would get in the battle and we would get in the field laboring, making application, I'll say more about that here in just a few minutes, but if we would obey the Lord with what he has already revealed, then and only then will he reveal more to us. And so we've seen the person of the mighty angel, we've seen the persona of this mighty angel, and number four, I want to talk about the proclamation of the mighty angel. In verse number five, it says, the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things therein are, and the earth and the sea, and so on and so forth. In verse number six, if this mighty angel is Christ, then why does he swear by the one who liveth forever and ever? The one who lives forever, ever is the same Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's the same Jesus Christ, and the the verbiage is clear. When Jesus rose from the dead, Revelation says, behold, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. We read in the, the New Testament that the God of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, is the same God of John 1-1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by Him, and by him, and, and yeah, nothing was created without Him. Sorry, I murdered the quoting of the rest. Bear with me, I've got a lot going on in here is not normal. (laughs) Hey, God created this entire universe. That's a reference to the Son of God. He is the creator, according to John 1.1. Why would Jesus, if this mighty angel is Jesus, why would he raise his hand to heaven and swear by him that liveth forever and ever and by him that created? I don't have any problem reconciling that. Because Hebrews 6, verse number 13 says, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And that's why I believe this connection. That's why I believe that Jesus Christ is appearing as this mighty angel so that that verbiage can take place that the mighty angel, he's swearing by himself that is living on the throne of God. Jesus Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father. In verse number 7, we find a phrase that's part of my title. 
that I'm glad that I introduced to you. We find a, a terminology, the mystery of God. Look with me at verse number seven. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, now this is not the seventh angel that, that is sounding. This is the mighty angel, but John is skipping ahead to chapter 11. In the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. There are a lot of mysteries in the word of God. A mystery is something that is somewhat hidden and somewhat revealed. We have the mystery of godliness, which is God manifest in the flesh. We have the mystery of iniquity, which is Satan working through the flesh of the Antichrist. We have all kinds of mysteries, the mysteries of the seven churches and the, the you know, mystery after mystery are revealed to us, but this is just simply called the mystery of God. The angel, nor does John just come out and spell out what this mystery is, but the context certainly does. The preceding verse stated that there should be time no longer. Look at it with me. The end of verse 6. And the things which are therein that there should be time no longer. Now time is the measurement. And you know I know when we get off into eternity. And eternity is going to last a long time. Wouldn't you agree? That's a dumb statement. But. I don't know any smart way to say it. Eternity is a long, long time. Everything in our life, we have to measure by time. I cannot comprehend eternity past or eternity future. Everything that we understand and can comprehend has a beginning and an ending, but God doesn't. And for those of us that are saved and we have eternal life, we're going to live forever and ever and ever, and ever. But at this point in time, at the end of the tribulation period, all right, when Jesus is getting ready to claim that which is rightfully his as King of kings and Lord of lords, there's still going to be a 1,000-year period of time. So we have to try to figure out what does the angel mean when he says that time should be no longer. I believe, and I will teach it because I believe that it's true, that we would commonly say today, rather than saying there shall be time no longer, here's the way we would put it. Time's up, buddy. Time's up. We're at the end. There will be no further delay. We are living in what the book of Daniel and the prophets refer to, Jesus referred to as the times of the Gentiles. That's where we're at during the church age. And when Jesus takes over planet earth, it will certainly be the end of the times of the Gentiles. Matthew 24 verse number 3 Jesus is sitting with his disciples at the Mount of Olives and they ask him some question, they ask him a question. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, tell us, 
When shall these things be? They're thinking of a time. And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Now, I don't believe that when the disciples said the end of the world that they were thinking of a planet. I believe they're thinking of a time. Jesus, when are you going to end all of this time that the world that we know, we're under Roman occupation, the kingdom has been basically dysfunctional ever since the Babylonian captivity. The temple has not yet been restored to full sacrifice, sacrifice and so forth. And so they want to know, when is this going to happen? Of course, Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And that's why I believe that this mighty angel, Jesus, is proclaiming that there shall be time no longer. It's here. No further delay. Time's up. What is the mystery of God in context of what we're reading? Well, there are so many things about God that we don't understand. I don't, and you don't. I don't care if you memorize the Bible from cover to cover. There's going to be some things that our human mind cannot comprehend and understand about God. Why does God allow so many bad things to happen? Why doesn't God intervene? Why do all these things happen? Isn't that the big question of the infidel? Isn't that the big question even of the believer when bad things happen? Tragedy strikes or something happens that we just think this is so unfair. This is so unjust. God, why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you intervene? Things that perplex our mind. Robinson Crusoe rescued a cannibal named Friday. And he began to teach him about God. Now, Friday had no problem understanding the concept of God. But when Crusoe began to teach him about the devil, Friday became really perplexed. Friday says to Crusoe, he says, If God be much strong, if God much power, why God not kill the devil? Crusoe pretended that he didn't hear him. Found some excuse to send him away to the other end of the aisle. You know why he did that? Because... He didn't have an answer. The mystery has puzzled many more than Robinson Crusoe. There were two farmers that were next door neighbors and one farmer was a religious man, a Christian man, and he always made sure that on Sundays he didn't plow his field or work in his farm, but rather he would spend the day at church and with his family and he honored God on that day and His neighbor, who was not a Christian man, would always say, why, you know, isn't it time to get your seed in the ground? It's going to rain on Monday. You're not going to be able to do it. And this farmer said, no, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to do the right thing, and I'll just worry about what happens. What happens, happens. And, you know, after years, the neighboring farmer, he noticed that And this may strike some of you as a surprise, because he had an extra day to labor, he ended up prospering and his crops actually did better than the farmer who honored Sunday and didn't work on his farm. And so one day they're standing at the fence and they're talking and he said, 
He said, I don't understand you. He said, you, you honor God. You would think that God would bless you for honoring him, but actually my crops have done better. I've had greater harvests and, and, and it's really, it's clear. And we have the same soil and we do all the same things. And he said, it doesn't make sense. And the farmer that was a Christian, he made a statement that was so profound. He said this, he said, well, sir, God doesn't settle all of his accounts in October. And we're reading about the settling of the accounts right here in Revelation chapter number 10. This mystery of God relates to the seventh angel. And if you were to skip ahead to Revelation eleven fifteen, when the seventh angel sounded, watch this, and there were great voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Time's up. God's settling his account. No one's going to wonder about the mystery of God. (laughs) It makes sense now. God's just biding his time. Many men have been willing and wanting to rule the earth. Hitler wanted to. Alexander the Great wanted to, Napoleon wanted to. They were willing and they were wanting, but only one has been worthy, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. My last point here this morning is the process of this little book. We read about a little book that was in the hand of the mighty angel. What is this little book? Well, some say it's the Bible. Some say it's the seven-sealed book from earlier on in the book of Revelation, and some just say that it's simply the prophetic portion of Scripture. I don't have an answer or an opinion for any of that. I just know that it was a little book that was in, in the hand of, I believe, Jesus Christ, and John was told to take it and eat it. Without question, this little book was a writing that came from God. That much we do know. And that this writing that came from God was supposed to be eating. When you eat something, you assimilate it. You make it part of you. You make it personal. Didn't Jesus say that his flesh and his blood were supposed to be drunk and eaten? Not physically like the Catholic Church teaches. That's just a, they, they miss the whole point. Jesus said the words that I speak unto thee, they are spirit and they are life. It's an analogy that God says, just like that food goes into you and becomes part of you and the nutrients of start feeding you physically in the same way, the word of God, that which God has written is supposed to be personal. It's supposed to be assimilated and become part of us. In 1989, to the time of his death in 1913, Ethiopian emperor Menelik II would get a load of this. He would eat a few pages of scripture whenever he didn't feel well. If he was sick, it's like, give me, he'd he'd take and rip a page out of the Bible and he'd eat it. After he suffered a serious stroke, he decided that he would eat the books of first and second Kings. He proceeded to eat both books page by page. They say that that action caused digestive problems that contributed to his death. I guess the eating of this little book is not a physical 
truth, but rather it is a spiritual. Now, in our text here, it says that when you eat that which is written of God, it's going to be sweet to your taste. I love John 3.16, don't you? I love where it says that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That tastes so sweet to my tongue. But then I start thinking and I assimilate and that becomes part of me. And then I recognize the fact that, hey, I have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to get to heaven. And that means everybody who hasn't believed is going to miss heaven. They're going to go to hell. That's bitter to my belly, the truth. When we assimilate it and apply it, we'll not only be able to ingest what it's saying, but also to infer what it's meaning. How does this apply to me? Thank God that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be saved. But one of these days, we're going to be before God, and God's going to be judging this entire creation Death and hell are going to be standing before him. All that have died in the past and all who are not found written in the book of life are going to be cast into the lake of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word of God needs to be assimilated. It needs to be personal. It needs to be put into application. In 1935, an American preacher in his 30s was just gaining some notoriety. He was in London conducting an evangelistic crusade when he received an invitation to come to 10 Downing Street to meet the British Prime Minister. Upon his arrival, the preacher was introduced to a weary but keen-eyed Winston Churchill. Chomping on an unlit cigar, Churchill looked up uh, looked him uh, at him with penetrating eyes, and he said, Young man, I've heard a great deal about these crusades. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you know the troubled ship that the world is in? Can you give an old man any hope? It seemed to this young preacher that Churchill was not merely asking about hope for a troubled world, but perhaps maybe hope for an old man. The preacher took out his worn New Testament from his pocket and began to share with him the hope that is in Jesus Christ. Now, if Churchill took advantage of the occasion and committed his life to Christ, the preacher never, ever knew about it. So often we see the big picture of this world and we complain about the Republicans, the Democrats, All the people that are at fault, and there's certainly plenty of fault to go around today. But brothers and sisters, what are we looking for? Our kingdom on earth? Do you think that the next president of the United States is going to usher in the kingdom in some utopia? I've got news for you. It's not going to happen because it's not time yet. Not until God says that it's time. So often we're trying to create a better world around us when God wants to create a better world in us through salvation, through redemption. And we've got to make the word of God personal. We've got to eat it for ourselves. And I conclude with this. Time's almost up. This proclamation of this mighty angel is going to take place sometime there toward the end of the tribulation period. I don't know 
when, according to our calendar, that that will happen. It could happen seven years from today. It could happen 20 years from today. I I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but I know where we're at today, and that is that time is almost up. We're getting closer and closer to the revelation of what we just read. There's only one hope for this world, just as there is only one hope for your life, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is my prayer, it is my hope that you have seen something out of the word of God here today that is far more important than all of the trivial conflict and toil and turmoil that we're going through in this life. It's not about us, it's about Jesus Christ. He's coming back and he's going to rule and reign. The devil's having his day and the world is having his day, but time's almost up, folks. The day's coming. I hope that time is not almost up for you, but if it is, I hope that you will put your hope and trust in Jesus Christ.